Hello, readers and writers. I am Professor Grandpa Tonio, the book guy and the writing guy, and today I have the pleasure of introducing you to an author whose books send me off on exciting adventures with likable young characters who show a great deal of courage and determination as they face some really difficult challenges. The author who is with me today is Liesl Shirtliff. Welcome, Liesl. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm delighted to talk with you today about your life as a writer. <laughs> Thank you for taking the time to meet with me. Absolutely. Liesl Shirtliff is a best-selling author who has received many awards for her series of books. In the delightful Fairly True Tales series, she takes fairy tales of old and reimagines and expands them by building a wonderfully detailed world with lots of humor and powerful themes of belonging, survival, and doing the right thing. The titles in the Fairly True Tales series speak for themselves. There's Rump, the Fairly True Tale of Rumpelstiltskin. Twelve-year-old Rump discovers he has a gift for spinning straw into gold, and that's when he gets into a mess of trouble. Jack, the Fairly True Tale of Jack and the Beanstalk. Jack and his sister Annabella are on a mission. The king of the giants has taken something that belongs to them, and they'll do anything, even dive into a smelly terrine of green bean soup, ugh, to get it back. A fun story with lots of fast-paced, daring action. And then there's Red, the fairly true tale of Red Riding Hood. Red is not afraid of the big bad wolf. In fact, she's not afraid of anything, except magic. But when Red's granny falls ill, it seems the only magic, that only magic can save her, and fearless Red is forced to confront her one weakness. You are going to love Red just as much as I have. And there's Grump, the fairly true tale of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, a grumpy dwarf who gets tangled up in Snow White's feud with the wicked queen named Queen Elfrida Veronica Ingrid Lenore. That's otherwise known as evil. Oh my, who's gonna win this battle? Liesl Shirtliff is also the author of the Time Castaways trilogy, which tells of three city kids who get on the wrong train and wind up on a wild, magical mystery adventure through time with time-traveling pirates, a ship with an unforgettable personality. That's right, you heard me, it's a live ship of all things. And add cliffhanger predicaments that make you keep turning the pages real fast. The first book in the Time Castaways trilogy is Time Castaways, The Mona Lisa Key. Intriguing title, I think. And look for book two, Time Castaways, The Obsidian Compass, which will be published in October this year. Liesl Shirtliff spins words with gold. That's what one of her fans said. Another said, she makes magical worlds feel utterly real. I think that's so true. I mean, I feel like you, you expect you'll soon step right into the world she creates, enjoying a thrilling and often hazardous adventure. Liesl Shirtliff was born and raised in Salt Lake City, Utah, the fifth of eight kids. And this is what she has written. My seven siblings tortured me, but I really like them now. <laughs> I can figure that. She now lives in Chicago with her husband and four children where she writes full time. You can find her on, online at www.lieselshirtliff.com. That's L-I-E-S-L-S-H-U-R-T-L-I-F-F, -F, Liesl Shirtliff. And here we are. And I, I, I begin by asking you, uh, uh, Liesl, I begin by asking you, what age did you realize your fascination with books? 
Well, I, I kind of struggled um, learning how to read. Um, but I, I remember very distinctly around third grade picking up the boxcar children. Um, I think I found it in my basement. One of my many siblings had probably read it before me. And it was the first book that I remember uh, getting lost in the words and in the story and um, just not wanting to put it down. And so that um, I remember was, was sort of my first experience with just loving books and loving stories and, and really stories have always been been something that I've loved whether I was reading or not I just love I love a good story I loved being read to I love the theater um, so to me it's all about story and that's something that's been with me I feel like my whole life even before I, I learned how to read well that so. makes so much sense and you uh, you talked a little bit about just now about theater. Well, I know that in college you studied music, dance, theater. Why did you leave that career behind and take up writing? Um, you know, it was sort of um, a natural decision after I had my own kids. <laughs> um, after I had my daughter, um, I realized it was really hard to maintain a performing career. Um, it was really hard to practice during nap time, you know, because it would wake her up. <laughs> uh, belting show tunes just didn't quite work out. And so I realized I needed a, a little bit more of a quieter passion. And um, I turned to writing more thinking it would be sort of the hobby that I would keep me creatively engaged until I could more fully pursue my my theater passions um, but somewhere along the lines I just completely fell in love with writing and realized that as I had been studying theater and doing these shows what I loved about it was the story arcs and the character development and um, that's that was the part that really fascinated me and so as I was writing a lot of the things that I had studied in theater translated very well to writing. And so I don't think it was really like this, you know, it felt like a very natural transition to writing stories. Um, and so that's, that's really how it happened is my kids. I like, my daughter likes to say that she was, she was the inspiration behind me becoming a writer. And that's true. <laughs> it's true, I guess. And I, I, I see that, uh, you know, in theater, you were creating stories all over the place. And so I understand what you mean by that transition. Not such a difficult one. Uh, no, and I think a lot of a lot of writers have, um, I find a lot of writers have backgrounds in theater. It's not uncommon, actually. Mm, that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. I get, I mean, I, my, my career started in theater. I was a um, a performing artist as a, a for my MFA degree. See, then, yeah, I know. <laughs> and it, I mean, it was fascinating. I mean, I, I I loved I loved performing, you know. And I think that that, in a way, I think it's happening when I'm writing too, because I'm 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 just I'm, I I I speak to these characters and, and their voices and stuff like that. So I mean, I think that 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 comes back to me, you know. Yeah, uh, it really does translate very nicely, I think. In many ways. Yeah, I'm, I'm learning that more and more. Of all the readers you could have chosen to write for, why did you decide to write for middle grade kids? Yeah, that, um, that also felt like it sort of was very um, natural and happenstance, sort of like becoming a writer in the first place. It sort of fell into my lap in a way. At first I thought I would write picture books because I thought that was, was going to be easier. <laughs> Let it be known that writing picture books is, is not easy. It's actually quite deceptively difficult, I think. Um, and then I thought I wanted to write young adult novels. And I still would like to write both of those things, but I think my, my own voice very naturally gravitates towards middle grade, um, towards that 11, 12 year old voice. And I think it's because those are those were such 
formative years for me and sort of where I live in my head in a way. Hmm. Um, I sort of, I sort of view the world as that in, in lots of ways, I sort of view the world in as that 11 and 12 year old child. I just sort of, my brain just sort of goes there. So it's where I naturally rest as a writer, I feel. And I also, I just think it's the golden age of reading. That's when kids, um, you know, right around, when I found the boxcar children in third grade, I think right around third, fourth grade, these kids are starting to see the magic of books. And I get so many letters from kids saying that they didn't really like reading until they found whatever book of mine. And um, it, it just drew them in. And that is, that is such a gift to me because that's what I wanted as a kid. You know, that's what the boxcar children was to me was that book that showed me how wonderful reading could be. So I wanted, I think I, I wanted to be a part of that magical place where a child is developing their reading identity at that age. And um, it's a really magical experience. And, and so that's, I think that's why all those things. Well, that, that's so wonderful. And I, I'm, I'm so happy that uh, teachers and parents w will someday be listening to this interview and, and, and pick up on that because it is that period of time where kids come alive, you know, with books, when the books come alive. You know, I remember somebody saying to me, all it takes is one good book, you know, Th that's all that has to happen is that one good book has to land in that child's lap. And there you go, you know, because then they realize that they can do it again and again. Right. You've cracked the door open. I think then, then the trick after that is continuing to find the right books to keep them going. Now they believe that they can, there is a good book for them, but you know, with my kids, some of my kids, they can go through, you know, five to 10 books before they land on one that they're going to stick with. That's true. So true. So you have to have a lot, I think, out there. Do you yeah. read stories to your own children as, as you're working on them or once they're published? I, I'll read them to them once they're published. Now they're at an age where they, they kind of want to read them on their own. Um, mm. So... I mean, they're, they're in sort of that gold, you know, I have a, my youngest is only two, but then I have a, a 10, 12 and a 15 year old. And so um, they like me to read to them, oh. but I don't really like reading my own books to them. <laughs> <laughs> it feels, um, I, I'm too self-conscious and critical, self-critical. Um, so while I'm reading, while I was reading to them, I would just, I like couldn't do it. I couldn't enjoy it the way that I do when I'm reading other stories. So my husband actually will read my books aloud to them. And that's really sweet. Or now, like I said, they're kind of at an age where they want to read them on their own. Well, that makes a lot of sense. I, I, I know I'm, you're making me smile because I know when you talk about, I'm, I get so self-conscious when I have to, you know, I have to perform the reading, let's say in front of a, a group. Um, I, I much prefer uh, when I go into a middle school, for example, I'll just bring, you know, a slide, a presentation of the manuscript as it was developing. That makes me feel okay because they can see that it was messy and awful and despairing. And then you just keep, you just keep going, you know, but to read it, I don't know, I'm, I'm going to be invited back to that school and I'll have to see if they want me to read portions of Lucas and the Game of Chance. We'll have to see how that goes. Um, yeah, that can, it can be really intimidating. You want to pick the right moment to share with them. It seems logical that you would choose the beginning, but I don't know that that's always the best place to share just a little snippet, you know? Yeah, yeah, Sometimes I, it I, is. yeah I, I understand. I was just thinking about that myself because I think what I would probably do is just hone in on one of those, um, you know, something where there was something magical going on. Yes. You know, yeah. something like that. Yeah, yeah. What sparked your interest in fairy tales and reimagining them into full-length, uh, very complex stories. Oh, I've always loved fairy tales for as long as I can remember. I've been, uh, I don't know if obsessed is the right word, maybe just a hair shy of obsessed. <laughs> with <fairy tales. laughs> um, My grandmother gave me a copy of Grimm's fairy tales when I was quite young. 
And I don't think she knew what she was giving me. I think she thought they were going to be sweet little fairy stories like Disney. But I don't think she understood that the Grimm's fairy tales are quite gruesome and dark. So I'm reading these stories and, you know, heads are being chopped off and fingers <laughs> are being chopped off and there's dead bodies everywhere. And I'm just like, my, and my grandmother was very prim and proper. So it was very, it, it did not align, <laughs> but I, I loved it. I loved it. I love, I loved the darkness and the mystery. It felt, it felt like it was sort of mirroring how I felt in lots of ways, you know, like sort of out of control of my own destiny and these grown-ups and people around me sort of telling me what to do and, or making decisions that really affected me, but I really had no say in the matter. And so these, these fairy tales really resonated with me on so many levels and anything having to do with fairy tales, um, the fairy tale ballets, Shelley Duvall's fairy tale theater I watched over and over again. I, w I was kind of obsessed with it. Um, when I started writing really seriously, and you can see that, you can see it in my young writing for sure. I, everything is fantasy fairy tale, has some sort of fairy tale connection. Um, but when I started writing seriously uh, with the intent to be published, I, I shied away from it. I was thinking, no, I want to be like a serious writer. I'm going to write like contemporary fiction. Um, I loved those stories. I thought that I needed to do something different. And so I did, I did a lot of um, more contemporary kind of realistic fiction. And um, then I remember getting the idea for Rump. Um, I was working on a story and, and something about names came up and mm -hmm. I thought, oh, it would be interesting if, if there was a world where names were your destiny. And my mind instantly snapped to Rumpelstiltskin. And that was one of my favorite fairy tales as a, as a child. And um, then this idea just blossomed in my head. And I think eventually, our psyches have a way of bringing us back to the place where we belong. And for me, that really was fairy tales, fantasy, magic. That's when I've really felt my writing really take off and blossom. And I found my voice. I resisted it for a long time. I'm not sure why. I, 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 I mean, I know why, but it's, um, it's silly how much we resist things. <laughs> that could really benefit us. And that was one of them. I resisted the fairy tales. I thought I needed to be serious and deep and found that, um, you know, I found actually the depth of my writing in these fairy tales and expanding them and exploring them and, and making them my own. Oh, that's so wonderful to hear. I, I think that uh, what a, a good thing for, for kids to hear too, as, you know, with blossoming writers, to know that they can follow that instinct and let let that happen you know i mean that's that's really um a, a good way to go because you're you know it's very satisfying uh when you when you discover that voice and it, it takes a t it takes a while i think for anybody to really come come to that you know a lot it of does. it does i think i you know i often tell young writers like you know play around experiment with things you never really know where you're going to kind of hit on something and, and find your voice. At the same time, you know, we have that advice to write what you know. And, and I usually say, well, write, write what you love, you know, write what is speaking to you right now or things that you're thinking about and that interest you. Um, if you're writing what you think other people want to hear or read, it, it's going to fall flat. And and people will see through that. That's so true. Thank you. I, I find myself, I'm in a writing group and sometimes, and sometimes what happens is I feel like I'm writing for them. And, and I, I get so strung out by that because I, I don't want to do that. That's not my purpose. My purpose is to, is to write what I believe in, you know, yeah, yeah. and um, 
And it, it, it's a little bit of a challenge there, but I'm getting better at it because these people are wonderful and they, they've been very supportive, you know, so it's, yeah. uh, it's, it, it's something that you have to learn how to do. You're, you're known to be passionate about writing book, books kids will love but also about helping them grow confident in their reading identity and writing skills. So if I may ask, how, did, how do you make that happen in schools when you're working with kids? Uh, well, when I go to schools and I'm talking about, I, you know, I share a lot about my own reading journey and how I did not consider myself a reader as a child. I, like I said, I, I struggled to learn how to read. And even when I found books like The Boxcar Children that I really loved and read multiple times, um, I did not see myself as a reader because I didn't personally enjoy the books that I was made to read at school. Um, I didn't usually gravitate towards the books that my teacher was recommending and wanting us to read. Um, and I, so I usually, one, when I'm speaking just to teachers, to educators, I really caution them from making it seem like one book is better than another. Um, that one book is worth reading more than another. It's fine to have like books that you love and sharing those books with students, but recognizing that sometimes uh, the books that you love are really not going to be the books that the students love. They're, you're, you're approaching them with two very different experiences. Um, for the kids, um, I, I usually talk about how it's okay if you don't like a book, um, no book is for everyone, but for everyone, there is a book. That's sort of my motto when it comes to um, reading choice. I, I am very, very passionate about free reading choice, mm -hmm. that kids have as much opportunity to choose the books they're reading as much as possible, um, that they have options, uh, that they have access. Um, I think classroom libraries are a really big deal. And um, I, I tell them, you know, you give a book a chance, you try to read however many pages, but if it's just not speaking to you, there's lots of other books and maybe try another book that, um, that will speak to you, you know. Um, so th those are kinds of the things that I do in terms of trying to help them find their reading identity. I really believe that every child is a reader, that there are books out there that are just for them, that they will love and enjoy. Um, but it might take some time for them to develop their tastes and their identity as a reader. Well, I think they, right. And I think the word that keeps popping up there that's really important to me is the, the choice, you know, that there's, they have to be surrounded by people who, under, who know what's out there. Yeah, we, I mean, and they just, they need to be given ownership and, and also not only choice, but validation of mm -hmm. choice. So I, I really cringe when I see teachers sort of put down a choice that a, a child, you know, a book that a child is reading. And I'm just kind of like, what do you, what do you think that's going to do to them? How they're going to feel about this book that they're reading, that they're enjoying. And you're saying that it's not good enough, that it's not real reading. Um, I just think that's, that's really counterproductive. Um, so always, I, you know, when kids pick a book and they're enjoying it, is you just validate, that's so great. I want to hear more. Maybe I should try it and make them feel like what they've chosen to read is valid and interesting. And therefore they are valid and interesting. Oh, that's nice. And I think that's, you know, what comes to my mind right now is the phenomenon of uh, the, the graphic novel. I was, I was thinking exactly about that. I'm at, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, I mean, the comic, they were considered to be comics. I loved comics. It was one of the first, first type of, uh, you know, that I got into reading and I, I just, I thought it was so interesting and so adventurous. And for a long time, they were just shoved back, you know, away from everybody. And now they're just, people are just grabbing at them. I think it's wonderful. I, they're I love exploding, it. but I'm, 
still seeing a lot of resistance from educators about this. Um, and I'm, and I'm actually in the midst of writing a piece about it oh, in defense of the graphic novel, because, um, I've had several teachers, um, complain that the kids are reading so many graphic novels. And, um, one even went so far as to say she thought it was lowering her students vocabulary level and <laughs> and um there's there's some really good research going on out there um showing how beneficial graphic novels can be and i'm thinking in particular about my own children mm -hmm. who um one of them was you know i guess what we would call a reluctant leader reader i don't think he would see himself that way but graphic novels have been kind of his lifeline. He'll, and, and really, there was a point where he was only reading graphic novels, but I'm convinced that if he hadn't been reading the graphic novels, he wouldn't have been reading at all. And the graphic novels built his confidence to a point where he felt like he could tackle the, the longer novels. Um, so, and aside from that, I, I really don't understand the point of view that somehow that they're less, you know, I think maybe it's, it's because we have novel attached to it that somehow it's, we're trying to compare it to a full length novel with no pictures, but they're not comparable. They're, they're, com they're two completely different things, just as a picture book is different from a novel and, um, you know, the radio is different from television. <laughs> it's yeah, I know. I, I, I think that one of the things that's coming to mind right now when we're, when you're talking to me is the fact that the, the graphic novels, I mean, well, first of all, I wish we could start calling it graphic literature or graphic books or something because the, um, you know, there, some of them are, are biographies or, or memoirs, you know, and they're not necessarily novels. And I don't know how we've got, that word, I think we're overusing it too much. And so it really restricts a lot of people's thinking. And, and the other thing I think is that some, some of the people that I've come across who don't look, they go, uh, you know, like they're, they're download, downplaying it. What I think, they just don't know what's out there. Well, yeah, like, don't knock it until you've tried it. I mean, have you, like, have you read some of these graphic novels? Some of them are brilliant. I mean, some of them brilliant enough to win major national awards, national book awards, Newberries, you know, I'm thinking of like Nimona and El Defo and these books that, uh, Roller Girl, that are just, oh. they're deep, they're dynamic, they, they have strong, important messages, um, they have, you know, complex plots, they have really interesting themes, like, and the pictures, tell one story while the words tell another it it's engaging different parts of your brain like i i mean i could go on about this for hours but i won't i'll i'll just write an article about it yeah, yeah, write it and let me know because i think that i'll spread the news i mean okay, i i, I will I, I surround myself with a lot of teachers and they're they're usually very liberal and very progressive and so uh, they're not the kind that would reject a, a kid reading you know a graphic novel but or a graphic right. anything but um but there are people I've come across lately, you know, who are out there in education who definitely don't agree with us. I, I want to turn to Time Castaways, which I find so fascinating. When I read Time Castaways, the Mona Lisa Key, it seemed to me that a lot of research went into developing that story. There's time travel, time warping, a, senti a sentient ship of old aspects of art history. I mean, how much research did you do actually? So much research, um, hours and hours, weeks upon weeks. Um, I actually, uh, I researched, I did quite a bit of research on time travel itself. Um, not that I was trying to make it particularly scientifically accurate because it certainly isn't. <laughs> but I did, I did want some sort of essence that I, I, I had at least learned a little bit about time travel theories. So, you know, reading some things about Einstein and, um, and, you know, I actually attended a lecture by a mathematician who, who spoke very, um, 
authoritatively on time travel and really seemed to know what he was talking about and basically talking about time travel as like this real thing, like this real possibility. It's, it was scientifically possible. Um, and uh, he said, he, he mentioned that one of the, oh, I always forget the title of that movie, but there's a, some film where there's a time travel aspect and he said it was the most, it was the most scientifically accurate film at starring Mar Matthew McConaughey. And oh. now I can't, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I can't remember the title too, but I, I, I know exactly what Interstellar, Interstellar. Oh, right, right. Okay, there we go. Interstellar. Sure. Yeah. yeah, so he said that was actually the most scientifically accurate um, portrayal of time travel that he had seen. Um, so a little, you know, but I didn't spend a lot of time there. I actually spent a lot of time researching um, the Mona Lisa, the Mona Lisa theft of 1911, mm -hmm. where Vincenzo mm -hmm. Perugia stole the Mona Lisa right out of the Louvre, just plucked it off the wall, took it out of its frame and carried it out. And it was missing for two years before it was finally recovered. Um, uh, that was a fascinating one. To, to, I, I hadn't heard of that theft until I was started writing this book. And um, I did quite a bit of research of the, the Padmanabha Swami temple in Kerala, India, mm -hmm. where there are actual vaults uh, beneath the temple filled with billions of dollars worth of treasure. Um, so it kind of had this Indiana Jones kind of feel to it, but, the, but it's real. It was true. Um, and, um, then of course, a, a lot of research about Queen Elizabeth, um, who's always been one of my favorite historical figures. So, um, lots of research and it was just so fun to research and just, come upon little snippets where I just saw uh, an opening for me to use in my book. Mm -hmm. um, usually when there was a mystery or blank space, very similar to how I would approach my fairy tales. Every, anytime I saw a hole in the story, um, a, a question unanswered, I found, I, I see it as an opportunity for me to use it and expand and, and put my own characters in that moment. Well, that's the magic of it, isn't it? I mean, when you think about it, you have, you know, it, it you, you develop that authority in a sense. And I, I just, I, I just love knowing that I can, it's almost like my little stage, you know what I mean? That I can put yeah. people on and let them relate and move them around, you know, and uh, it's, it, that's fascinating. Well, that, I mean, that was a lot of research, well, you know, <laughs> and once again, yeah, once again, I'm so happy that people will hear this because you know, I, I don't know if some people think that authors just, it just magically happens, but I, I know that practically every author I talk to, including myself, it, you engage in research to make, you know, the, for me on the island that the story uh, that is coming out took place, I mean, I put it on in the Aegean Sea and it, it, uh, I had to do a lot of research on the flora and the fauna, you know, to figure out what, to, you know, what was really going on on this on this island. If I wanted, if I wanted to develop, you know, develop some kind of a an awareness of uh, the vegetation and the animals and stuff like that. You know? Completely. So, like, for yes, I had to do um, a little bit of that similar kind of research for book two, the Obsidian Compass. There's um, without giving away too much in the story, they do travel to the Siberian Ice Age. And um, they're on Wrangel Island, which is, the, which is the island where we the last known woolly mammoths lived oh. uh, about 5,000 years ago. And um, they're, they're building fires in this cave, right? And my, and my <laughs> uh, copy editor very astutely caught that she's like, is there wood on this island? It seemed fairly barren. Uh, there's not a lot of trees because it's the ice age, right? And, and then I realized, oh yeah, they yeah. can't be burning wood. That would be impossible. Yeah. So they're um, burning dried woolly mammoth poop. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> because it is, it is full of grass. They're, the, the woolly mammoths are eating the tundra. Yeah. 
and and so their poop would be full of grass that when once dried could be burned however smell it would smell it would still burn quite effectively so that was actually a delightful moment it was and it's so it's so fun to be have problems pointed out to you and to find creative ways to solve them and, and sometimes the research really comes in handy there that's absolutely right that's wonderful what a great story. Well, in speaking of the uh, book two, what should your readers anticipate about Matt Ruby and Corey's continuing adventures? Not that you want to give away the entire plot, but you know, can you give us some clue? Sure. Um, so they, they will time travel again. <laughs> um, they, you, we will get much more about uh, their parents' backstory. So we, at the end of book one, we learn a little bit more about their parents' mm -hmm. connection to time travel. I, I don't want to give away too much there, but they do have a connection. And so we get more, much more of their, um, their story, which propels a lot of things. And we, and um, they'll travel to, um, so they're racing against, still racing against uh, Captain Vincent. Uh -huh. And they'll travel to um, the Chicago World's Fair, the, the World's Columbian Exposition of 1893 in Chicago. Um, they'll meet sharpshooter Annie Oakley. Um, they'll, they'll travel to Yellow, Yellowstone National Park, which is a favorite childhood um, place of, of mine. I grew up not too far from there. And so when I was discussing, you know, possible settings um, for for the books two and three, my my editor was like, "Well, where where would you want to go? Where where do you want them to go?" And um, definitely Yellowstone was um, a place that is near and dear to my heart, and I find so fantastical itself. It's a very magical setting. If you've ever been to Yellowstone National Park and you look around, it feels like another world, like you're almost like you're on Mars or something, especially when you get on the geyser basin with Old Faithful and a lot of the um, the geyser pools there. It's really, really neat. Um, so those are a couple of the adventures. Um, there's, there's more to figure out about the compass itself. Obviously, um, this is called the Obsidian Compass. And so there's a lot about the compass, the compass, and how it was made, and who made it, um, and and how the Hudsons uh, are involved and connect with that. So, lots of mystery, lots of adventure. Um, I think it really, it really pulls pulls you along and and kind of keeps you guessing until the very last minute. <laughs> wow, that sounds great! I can't wait to see it. And then, did you? Um... It, 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 I, I mentioned in the early part of the interview that um, it, it, it'll be available in October. Is that still true? That is still true. October okay. 15th. Oh, good. Okay. Wonderful. Right. Yeah, we have, we'll have to celebrate. Um, yes. In, in Grump, the fairly true tale of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, uh, four dwarf Rilga. I hope I'm not destroying that name. That I, 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 love, I love the name. Uh, introduces Borlin, aka Grump, to a very special mirror, and it's a, and says the mirror can show you yourself. You can't see yourself with your own eyes, can you? And yet we all need to reflect on ourselves from time to time because life is one big mirror. That which we put into the world will always come back to us. I would I would love you. I mean, I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm, a suggestion that. I think young readers would want to say to you, oh, can you explain that final sentence about the giving out and the taking in? Uh, I think it's fascinating. Yeah, I, I mean, I really think this is all about becoming self-aware. Um, it's really easy to look at other people and what they're doing and think that we know what's going on and um, sort of judge judge the situation but it it can we can have real blind spots when it comes to ourselves and our own actions and who we are who we who we're becoming what we're doing um 
So I guess the mirror in, in Grump really is this symbol for reflecting on our own selves, on our own choices, and uh, what we're putting out into the world and how that not only affects other people, but affects, affects us. I do really believe that um, what goes around comes around. What, what we put out there is what we're going to receive in return. Um, and that can be really hard to, to grapple with and to, and to, you know, come to terms with, not to say that if bad things happen to you, it's your fault <laughs> that you, you brought that upon yourself. That's not what I'm saying. Um, but I think in terms of, we have to think in terms of like our relationships with people and how we're treating other people. Um, I guess a, a good example of what I'm, what I'm trying to, to say is I remember a teacher talking about how she was reading Wonder to her students. And of course, Wonder is this beautiful book all about empathy and you know befriending people who are different from us and dealing with difficult things. And so they were having these wonderful, beautiful discussions about kindness and you know, choosing kind, of course, is the big theme of the book. And she thought it had gone so well. And then she witnessed at recess time, a couple of girls excluding another girl and teasing her and being really mean. And she was just so saddened that somehow it, it hadn't really um, sunk into their brains yeah. <laughs> about what it meant to really be kind, that they, they didn't realize that they were being so unkind. And um, that's kind of what I mean about, you know, trying to really reflect on, on what we're doing. Is it kind? You know, is it benefiting just us or is it benefiting other people? It can be really difficult to, to look at, to reflect and think, is the way that I'm acting, the way that I'm living, um, helping or hurting? Mm, precious, very precious indeed. But the you know, the concept of civility has been on my mind a lot lately. And uh, I'm glad you mentioned uh, Wonder. That, that's a fascinating book. And I, I want to post something about it. There's a site that I go to, which is um, Elwyn. Her name is ElwynAutumn.com. And it's, she's a, an advocate, uh, an anti-bullying advocate. Uh -huh. And uh, she's really, she was a, a classroom teacher for about 20 years. And then she's also writing. Um, but her website is all, I mean, her um, Facebook group page is all about bullying. And I, I, I'm, I just treasure it so much because, I mean, she's really out there saying, come on, kids, wake up, you know, and what you just said, you know, what goes around comes around or however you say that, you know, I mean, it's like, you know, what, what are we doing to one another here? And I, I just, I'm so, I'm so glad you talked about that. You, um, you said in uh, Time Castaways, the Mona Lisa case, you wrote, writing any book is always a big undertaking like climbing a mountain. So I'd like to ask, what is it about writing that makes you feel that way? <laughs> oh, I, um, sometimes just getting the words out on the page, <laughs> especially in, just in that first draft, feels like a monumental task. Uh, it doesn't always flow for me. I don't know any other way to say it. You know, I hear about authors who talk about, you know, they had a dream and they wrote this book in three weeks and I just want to punch <laughs> talk about not choosing kind. It does make me feel a little bit violent because I have never had that. Um, every, everything I write feels like it takes an incredible amount of effort. I feel like the ideas come really easily or I get this feeling that I know, you know, sort of what I wanna write, but, but getting the ideas for my head to uh, translate to words on the page is, it does, it feels like trying to translate some kind of ancient dead language on tablets that have been corroded for thousands of years. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
pretty powerful image, my dear. I think, I think, yes. You got it? You got it now? <laughs> yeah, no, I got it. No, I mean, I, I, because my, my friends will also say to me, look, would you please stop complaining and just realize that every writer writes differently? Every it, writer writes differently. Yeah, yeah, you know, and so you're not, so, all right, so why put yourself down that you don't do 10 books a year, you know, or whatever, whatever you want to say about that. I mean, I, I just think we all, you know, and I, I, just, I just think we have to keep reminding ourselves, and I think that's what's so great, you know, about talking to you, because we're endorsing each other, saying that that's okay. It's okay to be, you know, it's to be okay. a slow writer, or it's okay to struggle through it, rather than making it always seem like the, it's, it's an easy task, you know. Absolutely. And, yeah, I 100% no, agree with that. Yeah, and I, I agree with you there, too. I think that uh, I, I'm a slow writer, you know, and, yeah. and it does take, it does take me a lot of thinking to, um, you know, to get to that place where I'm, where there's a little bit of movement, you know what I mean? And I feel like it's kind of moving along, um, but it, it does take some time to get there. Well, what, speaking of which, what kids often ask me, I'm going to ask you, they often say, well, what is the easiest and what is the most difficult thing about writing for you? Well, um, I would say the easiest thing is just getting the ideas themselves. Ideas, to me, ideas are free. They're everywhere. They're there for the taking. Everyone has them. Often we have, we have the same ideas, you know, clearly I'm not the first person to take a fairy tale and, and turn it into um, my own story. Um, so the ideas themselves um, feel like the easiest part. And I, and yeah, those are, those are just magical. Um, mm -hmm. Definitely the hardest part for me is, is writing the first draft, just getting those words out. It feels like creating something from nothing. Mm -hmm. um, so it's very, very difficult, that part, just writing those, those words. Once I have the words down, the revision part would be the next, the next piece besides getting the ideas themselves that feels really um, enjoyable to me. Um, because I have something to work with and I'm taking something that's not very good and figuring out how to turn it into something, um, if not great, at least halfway decent, at least passable. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good beginning. Yeah. What, uh, what, what are you working on projects these days? Yes. Um, well, I, I, I just turned, you know, we talked about how I just turned in a first draft mm -hmm. of book three for Time oh. Castaways, but there's still quite a bit of work to be done. <laughs> um, the Really, uh, the revision stage is where things really come together for me. Um, so I, I will be working on that and throughout the rest of this year pretty heavily. Um, but I, I am working on a couple of other projects. I'm not quite ready to fully talk about them or say what they are, but Suffice it to say, I have I have more that I have been working on, and um, one in particular, uh, another middle grade novel that I just I am really loving it. And and I would say, if there was one book where things felt like they were flowing, it would be this one, <laughs> which I feel like I deserve. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say the same thing. I was like, and then I said to you, oh, there's promise, there's promise for me. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm very in the early stages, you know, I'm not, I'm not too far along, so it could go badly anytime, but it has felt, it has felt very freeing in some ways that I'm not struggling so much for this one. Good. Well, hold on to it, hold on to it. <laughs> as long as possible. Uh, yeah, I realize. So what, uh, as we're coming toward the end, I, I want to ask you, what advice do you have for aspiring young, young writers? I um, I think my advice is probably the same as most other writers, which is that you must read so, 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 so much. Reading, um, that will be your greatest teacher. And um, the more you read, the better your writing will be. I really do believe that. Um, and the more you write, the better your writing will be. Those two things will go hand in hand, the reading and the writing. Um, <clears throat> and it's okay if it doesn't feel like you're good at it. It's okay if it's hard. That doesn't mean it isn't that you can't be good at it mm -hmm. and that it's not worth um, struggling through it, you know. 
I do not personally feel like I am a natural born writer. This is something that I have really a skill that I have worked very hard and struggled to develop, but it feels so worth it to me um, to have words and to know how to use them feels like power. And I think everyone should have it, mm. whether they're going to be a professional writer or not. That's well, I guess I use the word inspiring. Well, it, 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 that's what you were just saying there, I think could inspire a lot of people to just carry on with it if they felt the urge uh, at all, you know, to work with words. Um, I, I come to say thank you um, for this, Liesl. I mean, it was, it's been such a joy to talk with you today. And, um, and for, for the writer in me, I just said this, for the writer in me, uh, it's been so inspirational and it makes me realize how, how I love talking to other writers, you know, and I love talking to you because uh, you know, you, you, you've, you've come a long way with it all, you know, and it's so, it's so inspiring to hear about your journey. Thank you. This has been uh, very delightful for me as well. I too love talking with other writers because there is some, there is this shared sort of um, experience where, you know, no one except for those who have tried it can really understand. <laughs> that is so true. So, uh, you know, I, I, you live it and then it's nice to, I mean, that's why I like interviewing you because we're sharing some of that journey. And I think it, uh, a lot of people could relate to that and, and, and gather, their, gather their, their energy and their, you know, their creativity, even when they think they're, they're not. I mean, how many people have said that to me? You know, kids will say, well, gee, I'm not very creative. And I think, oh, come on, give me a break here. You know, that's, you know, let's be true to one another. I think we all are, you know, we just have to find that you know, that, that energy. I yeah, wanna, they're they're yeah. creative. They're just not, it, it's more about, you just haven't found the confidence in your creativity, but everyone's creative. True. So true. Readers and writers, as I say goodbye to Liesl Shirtlip, I, I wanted to tell you that you can learn a lot about her at her website, www.lieselshirtlip.com, where among other things, you'll find films, and uh, that make her books come alive. But there are other treats as well there that I think you'll probably want to take a look and also learn about her books. So Liesl, thank you so much uh, for this and have a wonderful day. Thank you, this has been so delightful. Good, and talk soon, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay.